the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart and mind. Maybe it's something doctrinally. Maybe you're just stumbling over a passage of Scripture. Whatever it is, we'll do the best we can to answer your questions. 340-9585 is our number for your live calls. 340-9585 if you're outside the local area. You can call at 877-630-5757-630-KSLR. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to the studio. hope you're having a good day today. I understand we have some rain in the forecast, so that's a good thing, and lots of neat stuff that's happening. Uh, because it's Wednesday, tonight we have our Old Testament Bible study here at Calvary Chapel. I really appreciate your prayers. We're going to finish First Samuel chapter 18. You know, it's always really sad to watch people sort of fall apart. And we're watching King Saul uh, absolutely free-falling into oblivion, and it's really, really a sad thing. started out so well, he had so much potential, and he blew it. And the reason that's so painful is because as a pastor, I get to watch that. I have to watch that over and over and over. People that start well and don't finish well, people that seem to be serious about their relationship with the Lord and then they get involved or embroiled in some sort of sin and you see them falling apart. And the problem is they're the only ones who don't know that they're on the way down. So First Samuel 18 is a very poignant Bible study for me tonight. And of course, because today is Wednesday, tomorrow's Thursday. I know that's not too profound, but here's what's profound. Paula will be live in studio with me, ladies, tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. So get any questions you have for her or if you need any encouragement at all, uh, we would love to uh, have your calls on tomorrow's program. Okay, one more time, 340-9585. Let me get uh, to the questions that have been sent in. Uh, the first one comes from Oliver. He says, Genesis 2.18, what is meant by a helper or helpmate? Um, it sounds demeaning to women to me. Now, obviously, you're talking about Eve, and uh, she was made because Adam had no helpmate. Now, here's the thing that you need to understand. Um, and obviously, it's not demeaning because God loves everybody, and there's no favoritism between the Lord. But so, so keep that in the back of your mind. But you remember that Adam was the only one, the only human on the earth. And earlier, God had brought all of the animals in front of Adam. He brought them two by two, male and a female, and Adam gave them names. I mean, I just, I'm amazed even thinking about that. And yet Adam would have at some point recognized that everybody had somebody but him. He was alone. And it was in that way God was creating a desire. And he said, God did. It's not good for men to be alone. He put Adam into a deep sleep. He woke up, and there she was. So the fact that he was a 
she was a helper isn't demeaning at all. It means she completed him, just as he would complete her. What God had for him couldn't be accomplished without her. What God had for her couldn't be accomplished without him. And that supposedly the, the ideal for biblical marriage for all times. I know in my life it's true. I would be the most lost, the most helpless person in the world without Paula. She does everything for me. Um, so she's my helper, but she's much, much more than just my helper. I couldn't do what I do without her, and I like to think that she couldn't do what God has her to do without me. So we're very complementary in, in that sense, uh, but, but it's not at all demeaning when, in fact, you understand these are just different roles that God gave man and God gave woman, but with the same power, the same spirit, with the same purpose and the same objectives to, to find a way that in our lives we could glorify him. So our help mate or our helper, that doesn't mean she's like our assistant manager or our employee. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that your wife manager uh, is your partner in life. Ladies, it means that your husband is your partner in life. And it just means that you follow the Lord together. Each and every day you follow the Lord together. That's all that's meant there, Oliver. It's not at all demeaning to women uh, in, in, in the slightest regard. One final thought, and I'll go to the phones. Um, when you are tempted or you hear charges kind of foolishly made about God being um, um, hateful or God being bigoted or God being, in this case, demeaning to women, um, you need to start with the premise that that can't be God because God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, for you and for me. He loves us and everything he does, born from that love, is absolutely pure and absolutely righteous. So don't be intimidated by people who don't know God making accusations about God. Thanks a lot, Oliver. Let's go to Lauren calling from Converse on line one. Lauren, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon. Hi, Lauren. Hey, I have a question uh, as far as things that uh, we're looking at uh, with uh, churches upcoming, and you've set out some very specific uh, guidelines as far as things to watch out for with small group studies, and I've even seen that with some of the churches that we're, we're looking at checking out once we move. Uh, and I was hoping for some further guidance on with small group studies, um, if they were to be done biblically, things to watch out. I know you've warned about um, things like, you know, where it's more of a round-robin study or where it's based on, you know, books instead of the Bible. But are there, if you could provide some further insight on, you know, what a biblical, um, you know, small group leading would look like or even pitfalls to watch out for. And I'll go ahead and listen on the air. Thank you, Lauren. I can do that. Now, Lauren obviously comes to church here, and, and now he's made me very, very sad because he reminded me that he and his family are leaving. I hate that. Sometimes I hate the military. Not for long, but I hate them because they take people that we love away. We've got uh, uh, two families um, that have been so deeply involved um, for such a long time. Uh, who are leaving um, about the same time together. And after five, six years with these families, my goodness, it's it's just so difficult for us. So, Lauren, a couple of things to be careful about. One, make sure, and, and this is going to sound very general, but it's very important. Make sure that if you find yourself in a home group or a small group Bible study, make sure that the fruit of the Spirit of love is there. Make sure that there's no ego, there's no personality-driven agenda. Um, um, just make sure that the fruit of the Spirit of love is there. And if it's not, go. You, 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 know, you don't need a small home group. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with small home groups. There's nothing wrong at all. But what is wrong, and what we do have to be careful of, is when those home groups or small groups are commandeered for less than godly motives. And that happens a lot. Uh, I remember going to a home Bible study uh, not long after I got saved, and and two people hijacked the entire study. We're talking in John chapter 2, Jesus turning the water into wine, and the whole study was hijacked into a, why would God make something evil like alcohol? And the other one saying, well, it wasn't evil, and it just it, they missed the whole point of the Bible study. That's That's important. The fruit of the Spirit of love has to be there. Secondly, 
make sure that there's somebody who is gifted to teach who's there. Now, Lauren, I think you've got the gift to teach. So, um, you know, maybe maybe you can be one of those people that starts a home Bible study in the new church where you go. But um, um, make sure that somebody's there. It can't be everybody's opinion. It can't be, well, this is what I think, and my opinion's as valid as yours. God gives teachers as a gift to the church, and a Bible study ceases to be a Bible study if there's no teacher, and it just becomes discussion. Thirdly, and you mentioned this one, Lauren, but this one is the one that kills me as a pastor. If you find home Bible study groups that don't study the Bible at all, they'll study books that people have written, they'll study uh, how to be a parent or, or, or how to have success in life. I mean, there's all kinds of books uh, sold in Christian bookstores that shouldn't be sold in Christian bookstores, but nonetheless, a Bible study needs to be a Bible study. And it needs to be a verse-by-verse Bible study so that the context is always kept. The context is always kept. I think, Lauren, with your sense of discernment, uh, I think you and, and Justine will be able very easily to to sort of have the alarms go off in your discernment if things aren't right. So trust that, uh, that, that knocking at the door of your heart. Trust it very, very much. Um, Make sure that the couple or the man who's leading the study is a mature believer. Um, I always tell the church here at Calvary Chapel, um, it's great to have a multitude of counselors, but only if they're wise counselors. Um, People need to exhibit in their own lives the fruits of the Spirit um, before they teach others anything. So it's very, very important. So, Lauren, I hope that helps you. I think you'll be fine just because uh, your heart is so for the Lord, you and Justine. And um, you can tell Justine, if you mess up, tell her to call me. <laughs> I'm going to miss you guys. 340-9585. I can see Paula at home now with her tears coming down her eyes. I know. I don't want him to go either. That's what happens in a military community, unfortunately. 340-9585 or outside the local area, toll free. You can call 877-630- KSLR. Here is a question from Kevin. Um, Kevin says, why does the Bible allow for slavery? Now, Kevin, here is uh, the same principle I just spoke to uh, about uh, the, the demeaning to women question. Slavery breaks God's heart. It always has, it always will. The Bible doesn't allow for slavery. The Bible reports on slavery. Now, that distinction is absolutely important. God doesn't gloss over the bad things that happen. He doesn't try to paint a picture of a world that isn't uh, an accurate picture. And the thing that we have to remember is in the ancient world, um, slavery was a fact of life. Now, slavery has nothing to do with with American slavery. It has nothing to do with black and white. Uh, It has nothing to do with man-stealing from Africa at all, uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, slavery was an economic factor. Uh, slaves in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire outnumbered free men four to one. And it was just the way people lived. It was sort of like like giving yourself out, renting yourself out, except that you were owned legally and you had no rights as a slave. So it was Jew against Jew. It was others, um, uh, pagan peoples, who would who would in, enslave other Jews, or in some cases, Jews that would enslave pagan peoples. Uh, and, and God simply reports this the way it was. So God's not approving it. He's not allowing for it. He's simply reporting that this is the way it is. Now, Kevin, something else is important for us. We've got to understand that slavery is uh, a, a fact of life today. Um, we have women being kidnapped, young women being kidnapped all over the world uh, and sold into sexual slavery uh, in order um, supposedly to get their freedom. Of course, they're, they're never permitted to find a way out. Um, we see this in the news all the time uh, when we see um, um, people coming from Mexico and from Central and South America, and they're smuggled over the border. We just had a, a, a two horrible episodes where a whole truckload of people were killed uh, as they were left alone. Um, the, the, the driver of that truck is now on trial for murder. 
um, and others who were hurt, one dead, and, and others who were, were, were badly injured uh, simply because they were left to really bake in the back of a semi. Um, effectively, those people are slaves to others. So slavery is a fact of life. Now, here's another very important New Testament application for you and for me, Kevin. We look at slavery as it's presented to us, and it's offensive to us. It truly is. But Paul says in the book of Romans that we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, so we're still all slaves to something. It's not the kind of slavery that we read about in our history books, but it's a slavery of our own choice. And in the ancient world, there were many slaves by choice, not by circumstance, by choice. Even when debts were paid off, they chose to stay with the men who owned them. And they did it because they loved the owner. So slavery is a broad subject that the Bible doesn't gloss over. The application for you and for me as New Testament Christians is to whom or to what are we enslaved? Are we slaves to sin, which leads to death, or righteousness, which leads to life? I just gave an overview of the book of Romans. Kevin, thank you very, very much. Wendy says this, The Bible says no one can see God and live, but Isaiah did see God. Why was he able to live? Good question, Wendy. Um, Isaiah was able to live because he saw God the same way you and I can see God. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. We know that majestic scene from Isaiah chapter 6. But if you go to John chapter 12, I think it's verse 23, we're told that Isaiah saw Jesus. And the only way you and I can see God is that Jesus made a way. Jesus, the man Jesus, allows us access to God. A God who is a consuming fire of holiness, but Jesus who died for our sins and by faith covered our sins and gave us his perfection, his righteousness. Well, we can see God. Philip, don't you know, after having been with me for such a long time, that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father? Well, in the same way, Isaiah, way back in Isaiah chapter 6, saw Jesus. Moses saw Jesus. Abraham saw Jesus. Gideon's parents saw Jesus. And on and on and on. Jesus is the only way, Wendy, that we can see God and live. And because he died, we need not die, at least spiritually. And because he died when we believe in him by faith, well, then we can be with him every day. Because he actually comes to live within us in a relational sense. He comes to live within us. So, Wendy, I hope that answers your question. Isaiah saw Jesus, and Jesus is life. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Seth. Uh, he said, Jesus said that we cannot go to heaven unless we are born of water and spirit. Uh, that's John chapter 3, verse 5, by the way. Uh, what does born of water mean? Um, Seth, Jesus actually explains that. Uh, in the very next verse. Um, he says, uh, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Here's the explanation. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So what Jesus is talking about there are two births, the natural birth and the spiritual or the supernatural birth, the born-again birth. So verse 6 of that passage, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. This is nothing more than a reference. In order to be saved, in order to go to heaven, we have to be a human. We have to have had been born the natural way. Jesus says in John chapter 3, uh, um, a little bit later than this, that we're all born condemned already. And yet, by being born again, born of the Spirit, then that condemnation is released, that condemnation 
no longer hangs over our head. So he's talking about the natural birth, uh, born of water, where a baby, a lady's, um, a mother's um, water breaks, and and the baby's born. Uh, that's the natural birth. The spiritual birth is born in the spirit. When the spirit comes and convinces us that Jesus uh, is God, that we are a sinner, and only God has the answer for our sins. So, uh, Seth, I hope that answers your question. It's just the natural birth and the second birth, the born-again birth in Christ. Here is a question from Alex. Love your live calls. You guys are a lot more interesting than I am to listen to. Alex says, I don't understand the call from the man in Macedonia in Acts. How could Paul see a man who wasn't there? And why is it even important? Well, Alex, it's important for a lot of reasons. It shows us sort of how God works behind the scenes. Now, let me set the stage for you. Uh, we know that Paul's heart... Uh, for a very, very long time before God actually permitted him to go. His heart was to go into Asia, modern-day Turkey. It's called Asia Minor. Uh, modern-day Turkey and the region around the, the, the place where he wrote the seven letters in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Uh, and what we have here is Paul's heart to go proclaim the gospel where it hadn't been proclaimed. And he always wanted to go, and God kept shutting the door. The Spirit forbid him to go. And finally, he was right at the edge. And the Spirit once again cut him off. And it was that very evening that he had a vision. It's a supernatural vision. And the vision was this man from Macedonia. I know most of you say Macedonia, but I have uh, my in-laws are from there, and they always correct me and say it's Macedonia. Uh, he had a vision from this man from Macedonia. Uh, saying, come over here, come over here, we need your help. So Paul woke up and he realized that this was a dream given by God, a vision given by God, and he knew that while the Spirit forbid him to go into Asia, now he was to turn around and go into Macedonia. And that's exactly what he did. By the way, this is modern-day Serbia, uh, is where we're talking about, Croatia in that area. And uh, so Paul went there, and that's where we have the letters to the Church of the Philippians, um, go to Acts chapter 16, we see what Paul's experience was in Philippi, the whole um, um, going to jail, being imprisoned, and he and, and Silas being thrown in the stocks after having been beaten. Um, and we would say, well, why would God send him to Macedonia if he was going to get beaten there? Well, it turns out that the church at Philippi, a very poor group of people. They were very, very generous. They wanted to participate with Paul in his ministry, not only to Jerusalem, but wherever else. And so they began supporting him above their ability to afford. And God so loved their generous heart that he blessed them abundantly. And they're the ones that actually funded Paul's missionary journey into Asia when that great door of effective ministry was opened. So it's an amazing thing. God always gives us what we need. Wherever he's going to send us, he always gives us what we need. And in this particular case, uh, Paul was able to stop working, being a tent maker. He was able to devote himself full-time to ministry. The, the churches in Philippi would actually continue to support him and send him gift after gift after gift, even while he was in prison. Philippians, of course, one of the prison epistles. So we, we need to understand God knows everything, and he had it all set up. And Paul, being obedient to the Spirit, not trying to make a way into Ephesus, not trying to make a way into Asia Minor, um, listened to the Spirit, the Spirit said no, and then he heard again with this vision from Macedonia. And um, boy, what an effective, rich, and powerful ministry that was. And of course, the result for us, the blessing for us, is we get the benefit of this magnificent letter to the Philippians, uh, a letter that central theme is joy, uh, and, and we consider that Paul wrote that while he was in prison. So that's why it's important. And the, 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 the how could Paul see a man? Uh, this was a supernatural vision or a dream. We, we don't know for sure which it was. Um, I don't know that there's a whole bunch of difference between the two. Um, but uh, truthfully, God sent him a message. Now, we're inside two minutes here for this half of the program, so let me finish with this. And remember, we'd love your live calls on the second half of the show today. I've been asked a lot on this program about dreams. Does God still speak to us in dreams? 
The answer is yes, he does. But we have to be careful not to make, not to think that every dream is from God. Not to get over uh, over the top uh, in, in, in demanding interpretations. And my point is this: when God gives you a dream, or a vision, or however it is He chooses to speak to you, He does so because He intends for you to understand it. Now, if you don't understand it right away, follow the way and perfectly consider it. But at just the right time, just as it was for the Apostle Paul, at just the right time, uh, the meaning will be clear and you will know exactly what it is that God was trying to say to you. This is a turning point in Paul's ministry and it's one of those times when he could have been sort of pouting and, and angry with God. I keep wanting to go to Asia Minor and, and, and why won't anybody let me go? God, I just don't understand. They've, they've not heard the gospel. But he understood that God's plan was better and God's timing was better. And since we have the book of Acts, we know that it was much better. And it was, in fact, only through this trip to Macedonia that God was able to send Paul later into Asia. Alex, thanks for the question. I love that passage of Scripture. You're listening to the Word to Send Them for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. I'm running out of questions here. We've got a few left, so we'd love your live phone calls at 340-9585. Here is a question from Greg. Uh, pastor Ron, do you have any regrets about what you've done or the way you've done it in your time as a pastor? Have you found being a pastor is lonely? Because I hear that all the time. Now, Greg, I don't know if you remember his name. He is a young man who feels called to be a pastor. And we've talked about these kind of questions before. So, uh, Greg, let me let me just share my heart with you here for a few minutes. Um, th- let me do the second question first. Have I been found being a pastor is lonely? Um, no. <laughs> it's... it's uh, it's the silliest notion. I think what people mean when they say that, Greg, is that, um, uh, you know, there's who do you go to and you know you're sort of at the top and, and you can't make friends with people. That's nonsense. I've even heard pastors say, you know, you can't really have friendships with the people that you supervise and you have to keep your distance from people because you don't want to let them get too close. A pastor who doesn't want to let people get too close doesn't have a pastor's heart. The truth is, I have more people around me all the time, sometimes more than I can handle. I'm never lonely. I, I, it's just, and even if I was uh, in one of those times where there just wasn't anybody around, you know, my strength comes from Jesus. My joy comes from Jesus. So if there's no people to hang around, I, I, I'm fine just sort of hanging around with Jesus. And if with him, it's impossible to be lonely. Now, I understand the difference between lonely for human companionship if somebody's single and they want to be married. I understand that. But that's not what we're talking about. A pastor who separates himself from the people, who isn't in touch with the people, ceases to be a pastor. And I understand how the, the question arises in the church culture that we come from. Uh, Greg, because you know we have this this celebrity type pastor set up, where a guy comes in, he stands behind the pulpit two, three, four services, and and then kind of fades away to the back of the of the stage again, and and you don't see him. It's really important that we understand that's not what being a pastor is. Being a pastor means one of the things we do is we get to teach and we get to preach, and those are great things, but we have to remember that it's always and only about the people. So uh, it's never lonely. Um, If it's lonely, it's because you don't want people to find out your flaws. And here's the the clue or the key for you, Greg. They already know if they listen to you teach the Bible, they already know all your flaws. I think, I really do think that my church knows everything about me. I mean everything. 
I, I don't think there's anything that I've held back. So there's no pretense. There's nobody who looks at Pastor Ron like a celebrity or or, or somebody who's above uh, the others. I, I just that would be impossible if they actually listened to me teach. So uh, it's not lonely at all. Uh, do I have any regrets about what I've done? Um, uh, you know, I've done some dumb things. Um, um, we've been here for 22 and a half years, so I've, I've, I've done some things that didn't turn out right. I regret, uh, for example, early in my ministry, spending so much time obsessing on having a building. Um, but, but you know, God used that. But it's just part of the lessons that we get. And as I look back and see what God has done and is continuing to do, uh, it would be foolish to have any regrets. Uh, I've made mistakes. God's covered my mistakes. I cannot tell you, Greg, how many horrible decisions that I was about to make that God stopped me from making because my heart was right in the process. So I don't have any regrets at all. Um, the one thing that I can say, and this doesn't apply to me, Paul and I, when we got here, our our kids were already grown, so we didn't have young kids. But I do know pastors who, as they grow older and their children uh, and sometimes their wives even are sort of strangers to them. Um, when they're nearing the end of the, of the road, they, they regret not building more solid relationships at home. And God would never have uh, a pastor neglect his own family for the sake of the ministry. Uh, it's impossible to have a partnership with your wife that way. So uh, I do know that some pastors uh, that, that I know and, and even some that, that uh, have come out of this church uh, have regretted that they put the needs of the church ahead of the needs of their family. Uh, but, but that's certainly not the case with me. Greg, I don't think I would do anything different at all just because, um, I mean, I've said this before in this program, but I just feel like the most blessed man on the face of the earth, married to a beautiful girl who loves Jesus, who happens to love me, and, and we're surrounded by people every day uh, who, who are, are just God's treasure given to us, given to Paula and to me as a gift. Let's go to Harold calling online. When Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Sure. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm starting to feel hi. like I'm... Uh, hi. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like we're having our own, or at least my own Bible study on my way home every day after work these days. But <laughs> I heard what you said about the... Yes. Uh, the things about the slavery and everything, but my, my question is, you know, I was more involved in, in, in uh, Christian religion and faith Baptist in the 80s and 90s. And even this morning, I mean, I, I can't help but when I read the Old Testament and someone says to David or to one of the prophets, uh, I'm going to go ask the Lord. I'm going to go speak to the Lord. The Lord spoke to me. And I just can't help, even to this day at 62, I'm thinking it's God. And I'm not taking away from anybody's preaching, but I'm not sure... If that's a, like a, I know Jesus is there, you know, the way it's preached. But I'm just saying I haven't heard it preached in my own, I'm trying to say in my own mind, uh, I just feel like the Old Testament is talking about God, although it moved to the Messiah. And I do know when I'm reading the New Testament, I feel like I'm reading about Jesus uh, only, you know, not necessarily God you know, anything like that. So, I, I don't know if this is a later thing. I, I can't make the transition from from uh, I, I to say from from seeing the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament to the New. But when I hear about prophets talking to God, I'm I just think it's the God of Abraham, Isaac. You know, without not to say there's not three in one. But my mind just goes to that one. I guess I guess I better just yeah. somebody else. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think I can okay. help you, Harold. Uh, thank right, you very, very much. much. I appreciate the call. Uh, you know, when somebody says to me, I feel like I'm having a Bible study every day on my way home from work. That's what this is all about. So thank you for that. Um, Jesus said he and the Father are one. Um, the book of Hebrews opens this way, Harold. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers at various times and in many ways. In other words, in, in a variety of ways uh, through his prophets. But now, there's a big change there. 
in the way that God communicates. But now he has spoken to us, and the literal translation is in son. It says in his son or through his son, but it's literally translated in Greek, in son. In other words, God says, now that I've said everything that I have to say through Jesus, I have nothing more to say. So that's where the transition comes in. And when the Old Testament prophets were speaking or hearing from God or getting lots of visions, again, Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, I said it uh, at the beginning of the program, um, John chapter 12 says Isaiah saw Jesus. He didn't see the Father. The Father is not corporeal. corporeal. He's, he's a spirit. And so there was no um, um, way to approach a holy, consuming God um, apart from Jesus. So they saw Jesus. They heard from Jesus. Moses, when he spoke, uh, saw the burning bush. That was Jesus in the bush. Uh, when when uh, Abraham uh, was there, when Jacob, uh, Jacob wrestled with Jesus in Genesis chapter 32. So I think the problem that we have is that we see one in the Old Testament and, and then we see Jesus and it all changes to him. But it's always been that way. And the unity between Father, Son, and Spirit is identical. It's perfect. Uh, Jesus says, uh, or Paul says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father of his glory, uh, the exact image, that Greek word is icon. Um, um, if God the Father, who is spirit, could look in a mirror and we could somehow see a reflection, that reflection would be Jesus. So don't make the distinction. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. What changed was what people knew about him. It's sort of like the eclipse this week. You know, if you lived in Texas, you only got kind of a little sketchy, chintzy view of the eclipse. But if you lived in Oregon or if you lived uh, somewhere along the direct path, you got the full-blown uh, effect of, of the, the total eclipse. Well, um, the people who lived before Jesus came, they had only a, an image, a concept when Jesus came, that was the fullness of the picture. And when we understand that, then what we know is that God has finally given us his last word. His last word is Jesus. Now, what's interesting, Harold, is that all of his words through the prophets, all of them, were about Jesus. The Bible was about Jesus from beginning to end, and that's never changed. So, in the Old Testament, the Lord, Jehovah, um, the Lord of hosts, all of the other names of God, uh, Elohim, uh, a plural form of God, meaning more than one, but less than, not more than three. Uh, all of that's a picture of the Spirit of God. Now, today, it's the Spirit of God who comes to us. And what we learn from Him, Harold, is about Jesus. So the Father spoke to the world in his Son. The Old Testament prophets testified of Jesus, the one to come. Jesus, when he came, revealed his Father to us. And then Jesus, when he departed, sent his Spirit to us. And his Spirit's job is only to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. He will testify of me, Jesus said. So from the beginning, it was about Jesus. The end, it's about Jesus. He is Almighty God. And there's no competition between Father, Son, and Spirit. The unity is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. I pray, Father, that they will be one, speaking of his disciples, as we are one. So to divorce one from the other is to miss the whole point of this beautiful unity of the Trinity, the triune God. So, Harold, I hope that helps. Great question. I appreciate that very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a um, practical question from Bruce. He says, how do you balance faith against circumstances? When does it become foolish to keep doing something? Now, I assume by that, Bruce, you mean uh, uh, when, when does it become foolish to keep doing something when it doesn't appear that it's working out? Um, let me answer by saying the foolish thing, the most foolish thing that any of us can do is to stop doing what God has told us to do based on circumstances. Um, 
we started a church here 22 and a half years ago, and for the first two and a half years, it never looked like it was going to be a church. Uh, not outwardly, not inwardly, uh, but God was doing a great work. He was he was uniting my heart with Paula's and her heart with me. Uh, he was bringing us a few people who would be very, very foundational to this work. You know, one of the great things about our church is, is you can come here on a Sunday and you can see this place filled with new people. I bet we get 40 new people every Sunday. Um, and, and that's no exaggeration. Uh, that's, if anything, I think maybe a little bit conservative. Um, but we can look around and we can see a whole bunch of people have been here with us almost the whole time. And and if I would have sort of bailed out 22 years ago because it never looked like God was going to make a church, or even 20 years ago because God never looked like it was going to be a church, or, or if because things got hard, then I would have missed out on all of this. So I don't think you have to balance faith against circumstances. I think you walk by faith regardless of circumstances. I think the the Christian that walks according to circumstances is a Christian who walks by uh, sight and rather rather than by faith. And of course, we know the Hebrews tells us where to do it just the opposite. So circumstances don't matter. You being able to figure out what God is doing doesn't matter. The only way to walk with Jesus, to walk with him, uh, even into those places that appear dangerous, those places that appear to be foolish. Now, let me add this caveat. When God tells you to do something, you're going to find confirmation in the word. Like God's not going to tell you to divorce your wife and you, I'm convinced it's God. I don't have biblical reasons, but God wants me to be happy. Uh, We can tell by measuring what we think we hear from the word. That's why John says, uh, brothers, test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. There are all kinds of spirits speaking to us. But when God is, for example, calling somebody like me to start a church in a place that he'd never been before, uh, Paula needed to trust that I'd heard from the Lord. I wanted her to hear from the Lord so that when we go, we could go as partners. And we never want to stop. I tell the guys that we send out and start churches that, that it's not your church. You're, you're God's servant. You can't quit when things get hard. Now, some do. They're the ones that miss out. So it doesn't. it never becomes foolish to keep doing something that God's told you to do. Just check it out. Get confirmation from the Word. God will do that, I promise you, in His living and active Word. The other thing I would do, Bruce, and I don't know if you're married or what your circumstance is, but if if I think God is telling me to do something foolish, uh, I know that's one of the reasons He's put Paul in my life. I'm going to go to her and say, this is what I feel like God is telling me. I want to do what God, she knows that, I want to do what God tells me to do, so here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to say, Paula, would you pray? And when Paula comes to me and says, you know, I I think God says, yes, let's do this. I know she's in it with me. And we never have to talk about it again. We don't have to think about quitting. Uh, We know we're in agreement. And God takes care of us. I might be wrong, Bruce. You might be wrong. But when two become one flesh... And your partner confirms for you that her heart and soul is with you. So like Jonathan's armor bearer, I'm with you heart and soul. Do everything that God put in your heart to do. Um, Two of you aren't going to be wrong. And you're going to walk out together. And you have to purpose in your heart. You're not going to be changed by circumstances, by opinions, by what other people do. And certainly, let me add this, Bruce. I'm not sure what act of faith you're talking about. But... Um, don't let other people convince you that you're wrong. You you don't need to talk to other people when you've heard from the Lord and he's confirmed it in his word. He's confirmed it through your your wife. You you don't need other people's opinions. So just you follow Jesus. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. That will destroy you. So I hope that helps a little bit. I, I always think of Peter and what the other disciples were saying when Peter stepped out to walk on the water. Peter, are you crazy? I mean, that looked like it was foolish. But he's the only human that's ever walked on water. The only sole human who's walked on water. So don't be discouraged. Uh, Patricia wants to know, 
um, why don't we wear head coverings in church, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Well, Patricia, the reason we don't is because that is um, a, a, a directive to a completely out-of-order carnal church uh, addressing a local situation. We know that because there is no reference uh, to Genesis, uh, as, for instance, there is in First Timothy when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over man, because it was Eve who was deceived and sinned first, and then Adam. Um, that hermeneutic demands that we, we, we hold the First Timothy passage as a mandate for church throughout the age. Uh, in First Corinthians 11, there's no such hermeneutic. So we understand what was going on. Now, Patricia, let me tell you what was going on in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, remember, Corinth was one of the, if not the most, one of uh, the most wicked cities on the face of the earth. There was a, uh, a temple to uh, Diana, to Artemis, or Venus, depending on, on uh, what she's called. She's called different places, uh, different things in different places, but it's the same god, a goddess of fertility. And the way she was worshipped was through uh, sex. And there would be a thousand temple prostitutes, male and female, available for so-called worship uh, all hours of the day and night. And the way those um, um, prostitutes advertised that they were available was the women would shave their heads and they would often be bare-breasted just wearing jewelry and, and uh, their shaved heads. And it was like hanging out of sciences. I'm available. And in Corinth, um, all these carnal people getting saved well, they were taking these bad habits in. So 1 Corinthians 11 is not about head coverings at all. It's not about the length of hair. It's about authority. And so what Paul is saying, using the cultural, the local situation, that application, what he's saying is don't pray with your head uncovered. In fact, uh, in other words, if you're, if you're not under the authority of your husband, ladies, uh, then, then your prayers mean nothing. If you're not under the authority of your husband, then the church is going to be out of order. And he does that by establishing the roles in heaven. God, he says, meaning the Father, is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. So this is the hierarchy that he's established in terms of authority in the church. Now, this doesn't mean there's authority established like this in the world. It doesn't mean that we can't have a woman president or you can't work for a woman boss. Paul says to submit to your own husband's wives. Uh, Peter says the same thing. So we submit to our own husbands and we do it because he is the authority given to us over God. Now, remember, it's a servant authority. It's a partnership um, I don't want to go through all of that again, but what we know is is this was being all about authority. It wasn't about hair. It wasn't about head coverings. It was about authority. So, uh, Patricia, if perhaps we lived in Corinth, we would still be wearing head coverings in church, uh, but we don't. We live in the United States of America, and, and we don't have head coverings anymore. I hope that makes sense. 340-9585, how we got? Oh, we got about four minutes, so no time for calls. Um, Leslie wants to know, what does it mean to be circumcised in the heart? Well, Leslie, it means two things. One, it means it's a lot less painful, at least physically. Um, but what it means is um, to be circumcised um, in the heart means to offer a heart to God. Now, circumcision, and I'm going to have a chance to talk about a little tiny bit in a different context tonight in First uh, Samuel chapter 18. But circumcision was the outward marking that Jews belonged to God. So the circumcision of the flesh was exactly that. It was a painful, a very painful cutting away the flesh. Now, a baby on the eighth day didn't have any pain. But uh, um, when, when the, the, the adults, so Abraham was the first to be circumcised, it would have been a very, very painful cutting away of the flesh. Well, to be circumcised in the heart is also a painful cutting away of the flesh, but it's not our physical body flesh, it's the flesh that dominates our lives. And that too is very painful. Leslie, in this particular case, imagine what it's like when you get saved and suddenly you know you can't live the way you used to live and you gotta, you got to get rid of things that you didn't like. That's painful. Things that you, you like to do, but, but now you know you can't do them. It's very painful. Maybe you've got to get rid of some old friends, or you've got to distance yourself from family members who are causing you to stumble. That's a painful cutting way of the flesh. Well, 
when our hearts are stormed by Jesus, then the process of circumcision of the heart begins. We begin this process of becoming more and more like him. And, and at times it's painful, but it's always glorious. There's nothing that God asks you to give up or to cut away in a figurative sense that once you do it just because you love him and you love him because he loved you, that it won't pay off in dividends. Everything that God asks you to give up, he replaces with something far better. Far, far, far better. And that's what circumcision of the heart is all about. You know, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both said in their prophecies that God's uh, promise was to turn the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, from rigid and hard and, and hardened to a heart that's pliable and soft and pumping blood. Well, that spiritual blood we pump with that soft heart, that's what it means to be circumcised in the heart. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, here's a question. I think we got uh, about a minute and a half. Here's a question I can do. From Anonymous, someone told me there was a female apostle named Hunius. Is that true? And if it is, why can't women be preachers today? Uh, Romans chapter 16, Anonymous is where um, Hunius appears. Um, she, in the, in the farewell uh, to the letter of the Romans. Um, and, and it doesn't say she was an apostle. It says that she was noted as being outstanding among the apostles. It doesn't mean that she was one of them and was a, a, a better apostle than the others. It just means that all of the apostles knew of her reputation and they commended her ministry and her work for the Lord. So um, uh, I'm sure that uh, she was a wonderful woman of God, gifted and, and powerfully so, but she was not an apostle. She was a she to be sure, but she's not an apostle. We can't have women preachers today because, well, that's what the Bible says. Hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Ladies, remember, tomorrow is a date day edition of the program. Paula will be live in the studio with me, and we'd love to have your calls and questions. It's been a slow week on the phones. Let's do better. God bless you. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.